Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Charles Afron talks about the Metropolitan Opera House. Seated fittingly at the heart of Manhattan's Center for the Performing Arts, the Met is perhaps the most important opera company in the world today. And its establishment nearly 150 years ago marked the beginning of New York City's emergence as a global capital for the stage. But as you'll hear, this road was long and bumpy. Despite the support of wealthy bankers and industrialists, it took a very long time for the opera company to secure a proper home, struggling for most of its existence with an inferior space on 39th Street, even as it boasted world-famous conductors like Arturo Toscanini and world-famous tenors like Enrico Caruso. Here, Charles Afron, professor emeritus of French at NYU, tells us about some of that history, narrating a script he composed with Morella Jonah Afron, Professor Emerita of Cinema Studies at the College of Staten Island, CUNY, which draws on their recent book, Grand Opera, The Story of the Met. For more podcasts like this, for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. As you climb the steps that lead to the Lincoln Center Plaza and approach its playful fountain, in front of you stands the imposing Metropolitan Opera House. This monumental structure, its facade segmented by five great arches and enlivened by two huge Marx Chagall murals, is flanked on your left by what was originally the New York State Theater, now the David H. Koch Theater, whose principal tenant is the New York City Ballet, and to your right by what was originally Philharmonic Hall, now David Geffen Hall, residence of the New York Philharmonic. Set back, again on the right, are the Library for the Performing Arts and the Vivian Beaumont Theater, both facing a smaller plaza with a large reflecting pool. Imagine for a moment that it is the 16th of September, 1966, at about 11 in the evening. A glittering audience, privileged to inaugurate the new house, and having heard Leontine Price and Justino Diaz in the world premiere of Samuel Barber's Antony and Cleopatra, conducted by Thomas Shippers, American Artists All, is exiting the lobby and making its way along the red carpet towards the waiting limousines. My co-author, Morella Jonah Afrin, and I were there that evening, not in the opera house, but at a nearby film screening and having failed to sneak in for a glimpse of the interior, we walked among the celebrities and socialites decked out in gowns and tuxedos. Applauding New Yorkers lined the carpet. As we made our way down the plaza to the subway, in our everyday street clothes, to our surprise, a voice in the crowd shouted in our direction, Long live the bourgeoisie! For us, despite the rude rebuff at the opera door, it remains a night to remember. We are happy to report that since that September evening, we have stood and sat in the auditorium of the Met for countless treasured performances. The road from the old Met on 39th Street and Broadway, built in 1883 to the new Met at Lincoln Square, was long and bumpy. In 1949, Robert Moses the dictatorial master builder of mid-20th century New York, proposed that an area bound by 61st and 65th Streets and Amsterdam and Columbus Avenues be targeted for urban renewal. 
the acreage would be repurposed for a stupendous performing arts center that would have as its centerpiece the Metropolitan Opera. But it was not until 1957 that the Met finally committed to Lincoln Center, joining New York's major performing arts organizations on a campus to be shared by the New York Philharmonic, New York City Ballet, the Juilliard School, and the newly formed Repertory Theater, eventually replaced by Lincoln Center Theater. Rudolf Bing, from 1950 to 1972, the Mets' general manager, along with his team, brought his formidable influence to bear on the design of the new house entrusted to the architectural firm of Harrison and Abramovitz. The result was an auditorium somewhat larger and public spaces far more ample than had been the case at the Old Met. And most important, both stage and backstage allowed for a full complement of rehearsal rooms, administrative offices, and scenery and costume shops. No longer would sets for the previous or the next night's opera be stacked on the sidewalk against an exterior wall in rain and snow. Opening night art and architecture reviews were decidedly negative, but the new Met earned raves where it counted most. The acoustics proved to be nothing short of miraculous. The sight lines excellent for nearly all the almost 4,000 seats, with more than 1,500 on the orchestra floor and the remainder in the boxes and the three tiers above. Let me say a few words about the early history of opera performance in New York City. Almost 60 years before the curtain rose at the original Metropolitan, in October 1883, Gotham had greeted the advent of Italian opera at a theater just opposite City Hall. It was 1825, and New Yorkers were celebrating the completion, one month earlier, of the Erie Canal, gateway to commerce with the West. The city center was then the Wall Street area. Manhattan's grid pattern was barely a decade old. Above 14th Street, it was all farmland and country estates. Lorenzo da Ponte, Mozart's librettist, at the time professor of Italian at Columbia College, and in fact, the first professor of Italian in the United States, had engaged an outstanding European troupe. In the audience for Rossini's Barber of Seville sat the improbable trio of da Ponte, novelist James Fenimore Cooper, who a year later would publish the much-acclaimed The Last of the Mohicans, and Napoleon's brother, Joseph, once king of Naples, then of Spain, and since the fall of Bonaparte, living in New Jersey, in exile. Through the decades that followed, theatrical venues migrated uptown along with the city's fashionable set. In 1854, the capacious Academy of Music on 14th Street and Irving Place lent its stage to a series of impresarios, both foreign and domestic, who presented, fresh from their European premieres, Verdi's La Traviata and Rigoletto, Wagner's Lohengrin and Bizet's Carmen, among other enduring titles. 
Despite the programming of masterworks and the engagement of renowned singers, many prominent patrons wanted out of the Academy. The crucial issue in their eyes was the measly number of boxes available on Irving Place. Only 18. Many too few for the burgeoning moneyed class that was moving into princely uptown mansions. The old families, the Vanderbilts, the Roosevelts, the Astors, to name just three, and more particularly the newcomers, the nouveau riche, demanded boxes for their exclusive use in an opera house of their own, whose construction they were prepared to underwrite. The trustees first hoped for a site on Madison Avenue and 43rd, and finally agreed to a smallish, irregular block bound by Broadway and 7th Avenue and 39th and 40th Streets. They chose the architectural firm of J. Cleveland Cady, whose recent commission had been the southern range of the American Museum of Natural History on 77th Street and Central Park West. Pause for a moment to contemplate the dramatic expansion of New York's cultural landscape in the years between 1880 and 1910. The three-decade span is anchored at one end by the opening of the Metropolitan Museum of Art on the eastern edge of Central Park, and at the other by the completion of the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street. The period saw the expansion of the Metropolitan Museum into grand permanent quarters and the founding of many of the arts and science institutions that catapulted New York into the orbit of world cultural capitals. The Metropolitan Opera in 1883, the New York Music Hall, later renamed Carnegie Hall in 1891, the New York Botanical Garden that same year, the New York Zoological Park, today's Bronx Zoo, in 1899, the Institute of Musical Art of the City of New York, later the Juilliard School of Music, and the Jewish Museum in 1904, the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, now Rockefeller University, and the Pierpont Library, later the Morgan Library and Museum, in 1906 and both the Brooklyn Academy of Music and the New York Historical Society in 1908. Returning to the origins of the Metropolitan Opera, the architectural team led by Katie gave their clamoring, well-to-do clients a whopping 70 boxes arranged in two horseshoe tiers. The sumptuous auditorium was an example of the aesthetic of the Gilded Age. But for the exterior, the architects chose the striking contrast of a sober Romanesque revival facade. A witty rival impresario took one look and dubbed the building the Yellow Brick Brewery. Given the constraints imposed on the structure's footprint by the lot itself, Katie had no choice but to skimp on public and backstage spaces. To make matters worse, Many seats had only a partial view of the stage, some hardly at all. The acoustics were uneven, ranging from good to dreadful, depending on the seat. 
and retrofittings over the years did little to erase other deficits this world-class opera company suffered under until it moved from 39th Street to Lincoln Center. Antiquated machinery, minuscule dressing rooms and offices, rehearsal spaces inadequate to the point that the restaurant and the restrooms had to be called into service. In 1908, when the house was only 25 years old, the Met's historic benefactor, the banker Otto Kahn, promised a new and much-improved opera house. And 20 years after that, just before the Depression, he offered the enormous block near Columbus Circle between 56th and 57th Streets. The hidebound owners of the 39th Street Theater, hostile to that particular location, turned him down. In 1929, John D. Rockefeller's plan to make the Met the focal point of Rockefeller Center crashed along with the stock market. As to repertoire, it evolved in step with shifting demographics, the tyranny of the bottom line, the vicissitudes of taste, the clout of star singers and conductors, and the ripple effect of local, national, and geopolitical events. In the inaugural season of 1883-84, the Metropolitan Board leased the Opera House to Henry Abbey's Grand Italian Opera Company that sang exclusively in Italian, even though more than half the works performed had been composed to French and German librettos. For audiences at the Academy, the language of opera had always been Italian, but that was about to change. Why? The Mets' first season was a financial bust. Conductor Leopold Damrausch, note that the small park just south of the Met carries his family name, came to the rescue with a season of opera in German that both balanced the books and yielded high artistic dividends. Wagner, now sung in German, became the dominant figure of the repertoire. The brilliant Wagnerians who sailed to New York also headed the casts of Bellini's Norma and Verdi's Aida in their Met premieres, in German, of course. The Teutonic Met found a ready-made audience. Only Berlin and Vienna counted more native German speakers than New York. But if the opera-files who filled the upper balconies feasted on the ring cycle, six-hour-long evenings were simply indigestible to the well-heeled box holders who owned the premises. They put up with seven German seasons until a new international roster, the stars hailed from Australia, Poland, France, even the United States, began to mold the Met into the world's first major opera company to program most works in the original language. Polyglot New York, open to waves of immigration large and small, was truly an international city. In 1903, and long after, immigrant Italian audiences led the cheer for one of their own, Enrico Caruso who remains to this day the most celebrated opera personality of all time. 
The tenor was extraordinary in Donizetti and Verdi, in the contemporary Puccini roles, and equally remarkable in the lyric and heroic French repertoire. In 1908, Caruso was joined by the Met's new general manager, Giulio Gatti Casazza, who had revived the fortunes of Milan's La Scala, and by Arturo Toscanini, a conductor of immense prestige. Toscanini was a major force at the Met until his sudden departure in 1915. Gatti Casazza's stewardship lasted for 27 seasons. In 1917, just before opening night, the board banished German, the language of the enemy, from its stage. For the duration of World War I, the few German works scheduled were sung in English. It was not until 1921 that Tristan and Isolde again declared their love as prescribed by Wagner's text. During World War II, German was allowed. Puccini's Madame Butterfly alone was banned. The story of an American naval officer's reprehensible conduct toward his utterly devoted Japanese wife was simply a bridge too far. Back to 1917, and to the prohibition of all opera in German, Wagner would soon have his revenge. Out of funds during the Great Depression, the Met faced extinction in the 1930s. An historic cohort of Wagnerians, Kirsten Flagstad and Laurits Melchior, principal among them, sold out the house and carried the Met through to more prosperous days. We owe the most recent remapping of the repertoire to the partnership between St. Petersburg Mariinsky Theatre, headed by conductor Valery Gergiev, and the Metropolitan Opera under the far-sighted leadership of General Manager Joseph Volpe, in the wake of Détente and the 1989 fall of the Berlin Wall. Since the 1990s, Eastern European singers have been free to appear in the West. Russian and Czech operas, given in their original languages, have found a warm reception on the Met stage. Long ago, in Gatti's time, Rimsky-Korsakov's The Golden Cockerel and Mussorgsky's Boris Godunov, among others, were premiered and even slated for sporadic revival, always in Italian, German, French, or English. Works by Janacek, Dvorak, Shostakovich, and Prokofiev gained currency in the 1990s. Volpe also sought to expand the American wing of the repertoire adding the world premieres of John Corigliano's The Ghosts of Versailles, Philip Glass's The Voyage, and John Harbison's The Great Gatsby, among other titles. Again, under Volpi's watch, two of the three tenors, Placido Domingo and Luciano Pavarotti, reached the heights of name recognition previously attained only by the fabled Enrico Caruso. We should note, however, that while Caruso's reputation was spread far and wide through recordings and in print, Domingo and Pavarotti were the darlings of multiple mass media platforms. Such was the case for conductor James Levine as well. 
at the Met for nearly a half century and ultimately artistic director of the company, he was responsible for the musical values on the stage and in the pit. His overarching legacy is undisputedly the development of the orchestra into the glorious ensemble it is today. Since 2006, the Met has been led by General Manager Peter Gell. He has continued to raise the profile of American opera, introducing several already proven titles, Nixon in China, Dr. Atomic and the Death of Klinghoffer by John Adams, Satyagraha, and in 2019, Achnaten by Philip Glass. Less praiseworthy, according to most critics and the general public, has been Gelb's record in new productions. None has aroused more furor than the instantly notorious 2010 set for Wagner's Ring, branded The Machine, now rumored to be on the verge of its last hurrah. The most consequential of Gelb's achievement is sure to be the telecasting of Met performances live in HD. The success of this project can be measured by the exploding number of participating screens. From Minneapolis to Moscow, from Lima to London, 96 in 2006, 2200 in 2019. New Yorkers have the choice of several locations, including the neighboring Walter Reed Theater, a stone's throw from the Met, and one of the three venues operated by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Met's founders would be astounded at the company's present-day sphere of influence, not to mention its annual budget of upwards of $300 million, the largest of any performing arts organization in the United States. The reach of the Met's first general manager, Henry Abbey, was limited to the audiences he attracted in New York and on tour in East Coast cities and as far as the Middle West. Peter Gelb projects his singers larger than life on satellite beams around the planet. He has globalized what has been from the beginning an international enterprise that speaks the universal language of music in multiple national tongues. Through the mediation of an American opera company, arguably preeminent in the world, America, or better New York, has become the towering capital of opera. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.